well, I'm not going to sugarcoat this song yet. This <laughs> is <laughs> take three. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but we've got it good from now, okay? So I'm not going to sugarcoat this. This is my first ever podcast. In fact, it's the first time me stepping into journalism. Thanks for having, thanks for being here for your support, Sonia, because I wouldn't be able to do it without you. Uh, it's a passion project of mine, which is why I'm so excited to get this going. I'm a big believer in giving things a go. I rather regret the things that I tried to do rather than the things that I didn't do. This podcast is about the hard work that goes in behind the scenes, usually for people closest to athletes. I want to hear their stories and their journeys and how it's brought them on in life. Um, it's because I'm a big believer there's no bubbles without first some troubles you've got to sometimes learn how to dance in the rain so i've borrowed my husband's podcast mic not sure i know what i'm doing with it but i'm giving it a go um he has a podcast called pre-pro which i'm fully supportive of and my first guest is the one and only sonia irvine who is from Avalanche, who you would think is only F1 exclusive parties, but now they're branching out into hospitality event company inside and outside of Formula One. And they're actually endorsing my first podcast. So thank you very much for the support, Sonia. Listen, my pleasure. I like women in business. I like to support things that are new and people who try something different. Thanks, Sonia. Now, can you stop reading off that piece of paper? No, I, <laughs> I will just do it off the cuff for now on Sonia. So tell me... Um, how did you get started? Like, let's go way back to before Amber Lounge even existed. Ooh, what, childhood days? Yeah, like your childhood, like how you were brought up. I, it's funny, I was thinking of that this morning when I was hiking up towards, um, up the mountain. And I had the most amazing childhood, I have to say. My mum and dad were really supportive of my brother and I. Anything that we wanted to do, they always just said, give it a try. We didn't have any money to do expensive things, but that never really seemed to matter. It was just getting on with life and getting the most out of the things that you had. And if you didn't have something, then it was to work hard and get the things that you wanted. You know, for example, I have fantastic memories of, you know, my mum, you know, uh, travelling home on the bus with a, a, a goose hanging out of her bag because she went in for some meat and she felt sorry for this goose that they were going to they were going to kill. So she got it, put it in her basket and came home with a goose and then oh. we made this pen for it, you know, <laughs> made it with wire. My brother and I made this pen safe and it basically got eaten the first night because the fox came and tore the pen oh, down. No. And, at the goose, but uh, anyway, just things like that. She was good intentions with her. She she had really good intentions, and she made our life really. I don't know, stimulating and really free. Yeah. Really, I I think it was really free. We both grew up thinking that we could do anything that we wanted to do. Mm -hmm. um, she'd enter us into competitions you know, fancy dress competitions and she'd make our costumes and my brother won, you know, Prime Minister won and then she'd enter us into bike races and, you know, when we hadn't really ridden before and, I mean, the craziest thing she did was she entered us into a swimming competition when my brother couldn't even swim. <laughs> Talk about throwing him in the deep end, physically. So, you know, at least I could swim but, you know, she she threw him into this this competition and he was the smallest in stature in those days and, 
you know, God bless him. He was, I think the others finished in about 35 seconds and he was five minutes. And there was such a massive cheer whenever he finished. But he didn't give up. He didn't give up at the end. He didn't give up. And then the coaches came over and said, listen, would you like to join Newton Arnold's swimming? Because he needs coaching. (laughs) (laughs) Because we needed to, yeah, learn to swim. But it was that, that's how we were brought up. We were brought up that, you know, just give everything a go and get stuck in. And if it didn't work the first time, then do it a different way and, and Fantastic. make so it work. So do you think that then went on to Ed's career in terms of him? Yeah, they, they were, my brother, my, my dad used to race, uh, not at the level that my brother raced at, but he used to race Formula Ford 1600. Mm-hmm. And then he, he, he basically couldn't afford it and he gave up. And then he was offered a second-hand Formula Ford car again later on in life. And this was when my brother, I think, was about 17. I actually wasn't there. I was at uh, university um, studying to be a physiotherapist. And so my dad said, well, you, you, you can mechanic and I'll drive the car. Wow. So he went out in Kirkiston, our local circuit. And I know Kirkiston. Yeah, 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 I know it well. So went out there and... My dad just didn't get the feeling that he used to get from it. And so he said, yeah, mum, will you give it a go and see what you see what you think? And he got in the car and when he got out, my dad just looked at his face and he just said, well, I'll tell you what, you drive the car and then I'll mechanic. And that's how they started motor racing. But again, with no money, we had absolutely no money. Yeah. And so they'd do things like my dad would pretend he'd go to the bank manager and pretend that he needed the new crane for the, the <laughs> scrapyard for secondhand cars that he was that he used to deal in and, you know, or he needed a new kitchen and they'd spend that money going motor racing and they'd go around and they'd take tires off guys who had money where they were throwing these tires out saying, you know, that they were finished with them and then Edmund would take them on and bolt them onto his car. Wow. So that's how we, we just were brought up. You just get on, do it. And if you're meant to do something, then you'll do it. And if you're not, yeah. you won't. Well, like at the time you were going to university doing a physiotherapy course and then that happened to come in quite handy for it was even that's an interesting story because I unfortunately failed my 11 plus I just went to pieces in the exam and failed my 11 plus went to the secondary school at the end of the first year they said to my mum oh you know she could transfer across because she's taught grades in in most of her subjects Um, but we think she should stay here because then she'll be the bottom of the secondary or the grammar school so my mum obviously believed them and I stayed at the secondary school which you know maybe wasn't the best thing to do but anyway that's what happened and when we went to the careers day I said to the careers teacher I want to be a physiotherapist and he said well you're not intelligent enough to be a physiotherapist and um, I looked at him and I said sorry he goes well you're not intelligent enough you won't be able to do it so I just stood up, <laughs> left the room, yes, and I okay. went home and I said to my mum and dad, I'm going to do physiotherapy. <laughs> that man's told me that I can't do, be a physiotherapist and guess what, I'm going to be a physiotherapist. Yes. And okay, and this was classical of them just thinking inside the box because there was only one physiotherapy school in Northern Ireland and okay. there was thousands of applications for, you know, small number of places. And so I thought, I don't have to do physio here. I'll go to England. I'll do physiotherapy in England. Yeah, thinking outside the box. Thinking outside the box. And so I went and I actually went, I looked it up, and Newcastle was a very good school for physiotherapy. My neck of the town. Your wow, neck of the town. My neck of the town. 
So I went and I, I looked at Newcastle, went around Newcastle, did an interview. And as I say, I have a terrible memory, but I can remember sitting in the interview and talking my way through this interview. Wouldn't be like you. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the guy turned around at the end of it and he goes, listen, we're going to make you an offer, he said, because we think you'd make a very good physiotherapist. He says, but you should really go and visit a physiotherapy <laughs> department before you actually come and work for us to make sure it is what you want to do. So I just laughed and I goes, yeah. And it was great. They gave me an offer and I went and we had no money. My mum and dad didn't know how they were going to afford to put me through university. Yeah. And Newcastle isn't expensive, it's not too No, bad. but when you don't have anything. Yes. Um, so, um, and this was before Evan was racing, before Dad had clocked onto the idea of getting loans from the bank and things like that there. So we, um, but I, I went and they said, right, we'll, we'll support you, we'll, we'll do whatever we have to do. And, um, and then lucky enough, I was able to get a grant because I was below the threshold of a certain income and I was able to get a grant. So I, I was able to, to get my way paid through through university and even saved when I was was doing that. Wow. Time. So that was that... instilled like a lot of skills in you from a very young age to be able to be doing that really like As I say, my mum brought us up to be very independent, very strong, and she brought me up especially to be very independent. And I think it's because she necessarily wasn't she wasn't educated. She didn't go to university and I think she saw herself reliant on a man okay yeah. and she brought me up to be not relying on anyone I'm That's... in charge of my own destiny and I like that and I've instilled that in my children I yeah. try and instill that in my children so my mum brought me up to be like that and my dad brought me up to with very good work ethic yeah that if you want something you have to work really hard yeah. to get it and to wheel and deal yeah and he gave me a brain and my brother a brain that we just see an opportunity and we think, oh, we could do that with it, we could do this with it, and we do multiple we do multiple things. That's fantastic. So when you were in university, you then came out, was Ed becoming a racer then? And you felt he was in Formula Ford out? 16, yeah. So whenever I was at, at uni, he was, he was trying to be a racing driver. Mm-hmm. And there again, you know, he was buying and selling secondhand cars to get the money to go racing. He was wheel and dealing, wheel and dealing. Yeah, fine way. selling potatoes <laughs> all around. The, <laughs> That's the most typically Irish thing I've heard. <laughs> selling potatoes. He was selling potatoes, selling potatoes in Ireland and selling <laughs> potatoes in England. So he was doing all of that and trying to be a racing driver. And I was doing the other thing. I was going to university. He never wanted to go. He never, yeah. he never wanted to. So when did the two of you collaborate and come together and be like, "Listen, your sport's very taxing on your body. I can help you with that." It, it didn't for a while. I, I carried on. I was a physiotherapist in different hospitals in London. I then was you know, superintendent physiotherapist of a gerontology unit um, in Sydney, um, in Sidcup, and loved it. I loved physio. I really, really had a deep passion for physio. But I couldn't in those days decide whether I wanted to do physio as a, and specialise in gerontology, which is the elderly, specialised in strokes, treatment of patients, treatments with um, Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. But I, at the same time, I loved sports. And so I decided, me being me, I'd do both and not not give one up or the other. So I, I did my gerontology during the day, but I ran my own private sports clinic. So before I went into the hospital, I'd have private patients in from six wow. to eight o'clock 
treating them. And then when I get home <clears throat> at 5.30 or whatever, then I'd treat people at nights and at the weekend. And so I built up my own private sports clinic. And it was during that time, I got to the age of 30 and I just thought, oh my God, all I've ever done in my life is work. I've never really... <laughs> It was one of those light bulb moments. I, I actually had a nervous breakdown where I was just taking on too much. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was trying to do a master's at the same time run my private sports clinic, same time as, you know, the superintendent job <laughs> at the hospital. There's quite a lot of things going on. A few irons <laughs> in the fire there, yeah. Sonia. I had a bit too many irons in the fire and my body just... It, it was in the hospital and I was I was in the middle of treating this stroke patient and I got this intense chest pain. And I thought, Jesus, I think I'm having a heart attack oh, here. Jesus. And I went up to the doctor and uh, I just passed out. And all I could see was this doctor above me and goes, oh, we can't look at her. That's Sonia. We can't, we can't look at her. We'll have to get someone else to look at her. So anyway, they took me for an ECG and they assessed me and it was just stress. And my body was like just... Like a panic attack? It wasn't a panic. It was just... I, I was I was burnt out. Yeah. I was doing too much. Yeah. Um, which is part of that's the type of personality that I am. I don't say no if an opportunity comes up. I think, oh that's really exciting, that's yeah. really good. And to this I push myself limits. to the absolute limit. But that was my little tester and I have that now, so I know that when I am doing too much, my chest pain comes back. And yeah. that's me saying I am at the limit. Yeah. And I can't push myself any further than that. Listening to your body is yeah. important. And then I decided that I was going to go backpacking and I went off around the world backpacking. And that's when I got the call from my brother, Edmund. And he said, you'll never guess where I am. I go, I have no idea. I goes, but I know where I am. I'm in New Zealand. <laughs> and uh, he goes, I'm outside Ferrari. I'm about to sign for Ferrari. And I goes, no way. And uh, he was so excited. Listen, it was such, an, such a privilege, such an honour. And he goes, yeah, I'm about to sign. So I've, I've got a... I've got a contract with him. Uh, he said, I need a physio. Do you want to come and be my physio? I goes, but I'm in New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I goes, but yeah, that sounds great. I said, but I'll have to cut my trip short because I was due to do another yes. six months and the season started, I think, six weeks after that. Oh, wow. So I came back and uh, started going to the Formula One races. Yeah, and you and had some good times? Had amazing times. It was, I can't thank my brother enough for the opportunity that he gave me really. I think I was the first physio, female physiotherapist that there there was in Formula One. Wow. Um, so it was quite an unusual situation to be in. And I can remember going to my first race and I walked into the garage and my brother's shocking at introducing you to people. So basically this- I think that's a man thing in general, yeah. honestly. Do you Eugene, think so? if I'm in a crowd, I've learned to introduce myself. Because the boys just <laughs> don't, don't think do of it. it. So he- uh, yeah, he didn't introduce me. And I walked into this Ferrari garage and there was all these guys, Italians, um, blonde, you know. I, I wasn't in a uniform because they didn't have a I didn't have a Ferrari uniform at the start. And they just basically looked me from head to toe and then from toe up to head and down again. And I thought, <laughs> okay, then well, we know where this is going. Yeah. And uh, that was it. And at the end they were just amazing. It was an amazing team to work with. And Jean Todd was great and Ross Braun, you know, there were they were really exciting times, yeah. you know, and Michael was there and, you know, I'd see, we'd laugh, you know, I'd see Michael in the gym at Maranello and him and I'd be in there training. He said, I see you're doing the training for your brother then. Uh, that would be the common joke because Edmund just hate going into the gym. Yeah. He, he loved doing other things, but he just hated training in the gym. 
Oh, really? But great times. Yeah. I learned a lot. So then how did that go from being a physio working in Formula One um, to then now running such a fantastic events company? I mean, where does that happen? Th- my usual nature where I just push myself. I just always want to learn new things. And physio in Formula One just wasn't enough. Yeah. I'd gone from, you know, as I say, doing my sports injuries clinic, treating squash players, tennis players, footballers, rugby players, treating this wide variety of people to then focusing on my brother and the Ferrari team. And he had sold me off so that they would pay for my hotel rooms and flights. So I then became the Ferrari physio as well. (laughs) But it just wasn't enough. I just I just wanted more. And then that's when I started looking after his PR schedule and working with Enrico Zanarini, who was an amazing manager for, for my brother. And, you know, looking at his contracts. And then we did a, a TV documentary and I was helped direct that and negotiate the different things um, in that and plan it. Looked after his PR. So you're not just like one occupation you're actually covering you've been a chameleon and having to change into all sorts of different roles in, in yeah in one really yeah I like I like stimulation yeah I like taking on a lot I like <laughs> yeah I like taking on a lot but I think it's the stimulation because you learn so many different things yeah you do. and you know I, I was a, I was you know a really good physiotherapist and there was just a lot of sitting around in Formula One and yeah. a lot of travelling on the planes and I just wanted to do other things. I just I just couldn't sit around. I just couldn't sit around. It wasn't in me. And so that's why I took up, you know, his business interests, the stuff that we had. Because while he was racing at Ferrari, there was lots of stuff going on in Ireland. There was, you know, properties in the UK. There was lots of, lots of other things going on. And so I just used it as an opportunity. There was no goal plan. You know, I never had a... This is what I'm going to do. This is, you know, this is the bigger picture. I was never looking at that. It was just, I wanted to learn more. And and I had the opportunity to do that. And you're quite a sociable person. So at that time, were you planning parties with people? Like little quiet get-togethers that then you... No, No. not really. You just... No, didn't do that. No. No, it wasn't. Because in those days... Ferrari had their parties at the end of the year and mm-hmm. McLaren had their party. Everyone had their own individual parties. Yeah. And that was the hard part. That's when sort of the idea came up when we actually were out one night and I was hanging out the top of the, the sunroof on this car. There was, <laughs> <laughs> there was about six or seven cars with drivers driving them. We were all trying to find a party. Yeah. And we got, it was in Brazil and we couldn't find anything. And that's when I thought, what a shame that, you know, it's the end of the season and there's just not one place where everyone can come together and have fun and enjoy themselves. And that that stuck sort of in the back of my mind. But that was many years before Amberlange then started. So how, what were the first steps towards making Amberlange happen? Like, what was your first event as Amberlange? I decided when Evan was leaving Ferrari that I wasn't going to go. I was burnt out. I was working. <laughs> surprise, yeah, surprise, surprise, surprise. 18, 18 hour days. I just, I couldn't sleep. I just knew that I had to change my life or something was, was going to happen. So it was time to move on. And so he went to Jaguar and I went off. And I have no idea. I had no idea what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. But I just thought, something will happen. And whenever we were doing the launch of his um, book, 
and the TV documentary. I'd organised all of that. That was the last activity that I was due to do for him. And one of his sponsors came up, sponsor agents came up, and he goes, what are you doing next year? And I goes, I have no idea. He says, you're not going to Jaguar with him? I goes, no, no, I'm not going to Jaguar. And he says, well, come and work for me. Come and do sponsorship. And I said, I don't know anything about sponsorship. And he goes, trust me, you'll be fine. Oh, I, I think you would have, because if you're doing his, if you're doing his contracts and everything like that, you would have had some idea. I would of... have had some, but I wasn't from a traditional yeah, yeah, sponsorship yeah. background. Yeah. I was from a physiotherapy background. Yeah. And well, and you never he... let that stop you. Ah, <laughs> uh, no, I didn't. So I just said to him, "Okay, let's try, let's see." And he gave me different tasks, and so I went out and I bought spaces on drivers, and then in those days, the race belts. Uh, there was no branding on them. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, why don't we buy the branding on the front of the race belts and then also on the underneath so whenever the seat belts are flicked up and the TV cameras are on it, then you can see the undersurface yeah, of the race belt. Yeah, creative thinking? Yeah. Wow. So we ended up, I ended up buying the seatbelt space on lots of different teams and on drivers' visors and little spaces that no one really thought about where you could do one-off race deals or yeah. you could do low um, sponsorship activations now for people. Now they're worth a fortune. Like yeah. if, if you wanted to be a sponsor in those places now, yeah. like do you, yeah. I wouldn't even like to think how much you'd have to pay because it's just, and you, and before that, people weren't even putting sponsors on there and you created oh. a space for it. Well, there wasn't in those days, yeah. When I, when I first took that space off, it was the traditional spaces that were being sold, but they were a lot of money. And so that's how it started. And from there, I went into a black tie event company and then Amber Lounge was born. That must be, goodness, 17, 18 years ago. Wow. So you've been running Amber Lounge for 18 years 18 now. years. So it started as just events. And it started in Monaco. Monaco was the mother of Amber Lounge. And then three years later, whenever my eldest daughter, Megan, went to school, I then expanded and then took it to Shanghai and Barcelona and... Valencia and I decided that I would do four ambulances. I wouldn't do any more. I'd only do four, three or four. And um, just to keep it exclusive. Yeah. And so that's what happened. And then as a new race came up in order to keep the brand fresh, I'd moved to a new race. So we then dropped Shanghai and we went to Singapore. Mm-hmm. And we've since stayed in Singapore because it's an amazing night race. There's something fascinating about that city. It takes over the whole city. And I also then dropped Valencia and I took it to Abu Dhabi. And then with the... the, glamorous the Abu Dhabi. I mean, you can't get more. Monaco is the most glamorous, it but is. Abu Dhabi is... Abu Dhabi's good too. Every race is different. It's, it's actually different. You know, whenever people say to me, what's your favourite race, I'll say. I, I, I always would say Monaco, but that's because I don't have to leave my kids. Yeah. Um, but the other races, Singapore is a fantastic race. Abu Dhabi is a fantastic race. I'll but have I've to also come done to some next year then, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and the fourth event has always floated. You yeah. know, I've done Mexico, Austin, India. Took it to India as well. Wow. So that was they, they were great. And now I'm just waiting for something fresh and something new. So the minute I'm three events. Yeah, and each time you've learned along the way, like you're putting a lot of hard work into it. Has there been any times where you've experienced? like some knockbacks but learnt from them and brought them forward is there any lessons that you would like to I think in all types of business especially nowadays business is hard Mm -hmm. and you have to you have to grab every opportunity 
you always have to be looking at your budgets. You've got to try and make, you know, big things look small. Yeah. Um, and you just have to keep pushing all the time. Yeah. And that's how I run Amber Lounge. You know, we have, we've expanded. As I say, I only do four events. It doesn't mean to say that I haven't expanded Amber Lounge. You know, we brought on a fashion show. We brought on dining, and we brought fashion to Singapore. Then we've run Amber Hospitality, where we do two boats in Monaco. Yeah, because I've, I've been to your event. It's not just a party. It's literally, pre- you have to prep yourself for the weekend of action-packed, fun, glamorous. Just, it's really mind-blowing. Wow, the whole experience to go to Amber Lounge, from the fashion show to the parties to the, you must like. Where do you get your energy from? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I and actually... even all the girls that, and then the staff that work for you. I have no idea how they cope. On a weekend, because it's literally around the clock, because you party until, like, the absolute maximum time in the mornings and, you know... Well, I don't party. I work, but I... Yeah, the party goes on till five in the morning, and then I'll have... Minimum, yeah. And then we've got debrief, so I'm there. I'm there for the debrief, you know, what was good in the night, what was... What was... Could be done better the next day. Constantly learning. Always learning, always pushing the boundaries, always trying to make it better. You know, what's our beverage stock? Do we need to add in more beverage? Because you can never run out of alcohol. And then I go to bed for maybe two hours and then I'm up because then I'm in the paddock. Yeah. And then I'm doing the other activities, you know, because we've got, as I say, the boats going on. So then I'm organising for the drivers to come onto the boats and we've got our celebrities who come (laughs) and then they want to be shown around the paddock. When oh I think gosh. about it, it is, it's just... That's relentless. It and is you're dealing relentless. with a lot of egos as well in this. You know, you're dealing with A-list celebrities that wanting to come and get close to the action and you're able to bring that to them. But how, when you're so on the clock and tired, and, well, you're never tired, but you, you know, how do you approach those situations? You know? I approach everybody the same. I've always done that. Yeah, you have um, to be fair. I, I'm... You know, from the concierge down at the Columbus Hotel to the concierge at the Meridian Beach to, you know, Pamela Anderson coming. Uh, everyone's the same. Yeah. So I, I do, I, I try and treat everybody the same. and Just be true to yourself, really. Yeah. And you treat people the way you'd expect to be treated yeah. yourself. And... and, you know, I'll march them. <laughs> because I'm saying, <laughs> I go to them... Okay, I go, right, we've got... Which is true, because Monaco Race Weekend, logistically, is really hard. It is difficult, Because, yeah. you know, if you don't get into the garages before a certain time and the cars come out, well, guess what, you ain't doing it. And you've... So whenever the celebrities are coming, I'll say to them, right, you have to be at the dock at this time, otherwise you're going to miss getting into the garages. And that's fine, because then I can take you to the boat, but I just want you to know the, the, the yeah, consequences of it so if yeah. you want to go into the garages this is the time you'll have to be there and if you if you don't then that's fine then we'll take you onto the boat so as long as you're really straight up with them and straight up with their managers then it tends to work and you know we had Justin Bieber one year and sillily his PR didn't tell him to do his hair and put makeup on and all stuff like that there because the minute I walked into the paddock with him he was just mobbed. Yeah. Absolutely mobbed. And he turned to his PR and goes, Why didn't you tell me it was gonna, you know, it was yeah, gonna be yes. like this? And we ended up taking shelter in Bernie's bus, which was quite hilarious. <laughs> As you do. As you, we couldn't Bernie, get anywhere. We just take shelter in your <laughs> we bus. Get I looked at Bernie and I goes, oh, well, I you know, I can't go. And I said to 
I said to the guy, um, Justin Security, he goes, you know, what are we going to do? And I goes, well, there's a back door. You know, let's put, him a, put a coat on him and a hat on him. We'll take him out the back door. And he goes, well, I'm security. I'll decide what we're going to do with him. I goes, okay, then. Okay, then. Okay, then. Uh, you decide what you're doing. He goes, so I think we should take him out the back door. And I goes, that's a great idea. Let's take <laughs> I love it. It had to be his idea. Let's take him out the back door. And that's what we did. So we opened up the gate, took him out the back door, and then he went on to... Now, my favourite uh, Amber story is when I saw you and you had a cast on your leg and I went, <laughs> oh, and Sonia, what's happened here? And you tell us the story. How did you break Oh, your my leg? God, that was Monaco last year. I was actually, <laughs> I was actually in a dress because I do the fashion show um, and they put me in a dress that was, I, I didn't have time to try on the dress beforehand. So I basically just rocked up. Swinged it. And it was the last dress that was on the hanger. And so I just put this dress on and it was far too long for me. And so even with my shoes, it was just long. So Prince Albert, one minute he was coming by tender. And then I got a message from his security that he was coming by car. So I was running from the jetty to the front entrance of Amber Lounge. In this dress. In this dress and high heel shoes. Well, I got to, that was okay. And then they said, oh, we're changing the, the pickup point, drop-off point. He's going to be at the front entrance at the Meridian Beach Plaza. So I was at the entrance oh. of Amber Lounge. So I thought, oh, Jesus. So I'm rushing down and I fell down the stairs. Oh. I fell down the stairs in this dress and I knew I'd broken my foot. I just knew it because I could hear it cracking from my physio. Oh, and it no. was so painful. And I looked at the girls. I goes, give me, give me I had um, painkillers in my bag. So I said to them, give me four anti-inflammatory. And I just took the four anti-inflammatory, went to meet Prince Albert, walking, <laughs> walking along with him. And he goes, Sonia, so how are you? And I goes, I'm all right. I goes, actually, I'm not all right. I says, I think I've broken my foot. <laughs> he just looks at me and he grabs my arm and he goes, really I goes yeah I think I have <laughs> and so he's holding onto my arm as we're walking down towards the media and I thought well this isn't going to look a very good story me limping and Prince Albert you know holding me up yeah. so I goes to him no 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 I'm okay I'm okay I'm okay so anyway um I did the fashion show did dining that year with so many people it was I think with 420 people in dining wow. and then to get 420 people are at the fashion show and then 420 people into dining it was a lot so there was a lot of running around logistics running around I then had make sure the dining was well then the and everyone was going into Amberlange I got my act on and then I went and I sat down and by that time my foot was black and swollen how have you like been able to compress that like I just had to I had to. So the the funny story, so I go to the security at the front door, and this was 2.30 in the morning, I did this at 7.30, because he, 7.15, he arrived at 7.15. You must have just been going off adrenaline the whole time. It was, but I just couldn't think about it, because I knew, and I knew if I took the shoe off, I was never getting it back on again. And I still had the dress on. You kept your shoe on. Yeah, because I couldn't take the dress off, (laughs) because my other dress was short, and then you would have seen a black foot. monkey black foot it's all yeah gangrene foot walking around Amberland so I had to keep the long extra long dress on so I went to my security and I goes right you need to take me to hospital and the girls are going no no we'll come with you and I goes no 
you've got a job to do, I can take myself to hospital. Yeah. So they were probably looking for some time off. A bit of, <laughs> a bit of just five minutes sat in the hospital where they're not having to like run around like mad. So the, well, we went into the hospital and uh, they goes, uh, what, what, do you, what have you done? I says, I think I've broken my foot. And uh, so the doctor looks at it and he goes, what time did you do this? <laughs> I said, 7.15. He goes, and you worked on this foot until 2.30 in the morning? I goes, yeah. He goes, who's your boss? I said, didn't your boss know that you've broken your foot? I goes, I am the boss. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he just laughed. And that's why I'm the boss. <laughs> and he just laughed. So they did an x-ray and I broke my foot in five places. Places. Well, yeah. no wonder you had a massive cast on when yeah. I saw you next. Put a cast on. And then he looked at me and he goes, okay, there's no walking. You have to elevate this all weekend. All right, you did that for about, I'm guessing, a couple of hours and then you were back on it. I didn't. And I looked at him and I goes, I can't do that. I says, I'll do that on the Monday. <laughs> In fact, I couldn't because I had an event on the Monday. I, I said, I'll do it on the Tuesday, but I can't do it now. And he just laughed. He goes, I didn't think you were going to do it. That was horrendous because yeah. I go everywhere on my scooter and I was trying. I physically went down into my parking space and I thought, how the hell am I going to get on this scooter? Because I had to get into the paddock to see the drivers and see everybody and bring Sigala and everybody around. And I tried to get on the scooter with the crutches because I had crutches <laughs> oh, <really? laughs> and a bag and I, was, I had them strapped to the scooter and then it was so dangerous because I thought the police are going to stop me. 100% the police are going to stop you. So in the end... hanging off your scooter. Yeah, crutches hanging off the scooter. In the end, I went down and I got a tender. I jumped on the back of... Uh, it was actually Daniel Ricardo's tender because he saw me there in the crutches and he goes, where are you going? Yeah. I said, I'm, I'm going into the paddock. And he goes, really? I go, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can I get a lift? I could get onto his boat because it was a flap. Back ah, to yeah. it. Because I couldn't jump one, down yeah. onto the boat. Yeah. But trying to get off it was shocking. And then Sigala, we were laughing about it at Singapore, where I was physically marching them up the paddock and the pit lane wall with, with on crutches. Amazing. And a cast on. I mean that no one can say that you are nothing but the most hardworking person I know. <laughs> honestly. Like it's it's really inspirational, Sonia. I mean, this has been a fun podcast. I'll stop us there just because I think uh, I don't think we can peak that story of the book, <laughs> to be honest. So no, yeah. So we'll stop it there. And thank you very much for being uh, my first guest on Champagne. Thank you for asking me, and good luck. Thanks, Sonia. <laughs>